Hey guys, so as I said last week in my intro, I had some emergency travel last week, and as a result, I had to postpone an interview with Megan Garber from The Atlantic, who I am really, really excited about talking with. So that's going to have to come in a couple weeks because I couldn't do it last week. However, I had some time, and so I put up some requests for Q&A questions sort of an ask me anything type deal. And so I'm going to do that today, a little get to know your host, so to speak. So I told people they could ask about Depolarize or Reconstruct, the other podcast that I co-host with John Raines. It's about theological topics. So I have three categories of questions today, some general ones, then Depolarize related, and then Reconstruct related in that order. So here goes. First general question. This is from Don Whitford. What podcasts do you listen to? Well, Don, honestly, my podcast consumption has gone way down since I started making my own. I don't really know why that is. Maybe I'm like jealous or I don't know. I just want to be in my own tunnel and focus on what I'm doing. But the only show I always listen to every week within a couple days is PBS NewsHour with Brooks and Shields. It is like a 12-minute segment of the normal hour of their news show, I guess, where David Brooks and Mark Shields come on. David Brooks is one of my favorite columnists. He's with the New York Times. He's like center-right. And Mark Shields is a syndicated columnist who's more left, center-left. And I just think they are incredibly smart guys, also who can disagree or agree. Uh, I feel like I get a nice balanced little view at the most important news events of the week. It's really short. It's only 12 minutes long. So it's not everything, but I find that to be incredibly helpful. Next up, my favorite podcast after that is probably Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. I think I just love it so much because he is just so good. He just produces such good content. His books are amazing. I've read a handful of them. And the stories that he tells on revisionist history are just phenomenal. So new season just started there. I'm super pumped. As for politics, I don't listen to very many political podcasts. I actually have generalized anxiety disorder and politics are actually a real trigger for me. You might ask why I started a political podcast. I might ask myself the same question, and I do pretty regularly. But I kind of have to regulate the amount of political information that I take in. I can get sort of physically overwhelmed with anxiety and stress. So I kind of stopped listening to a bunch that I used to listen to closer to the election or right after the election. And so now I mostly just will cherry pick individual episodes from like longer form shows, two-person interviews mostly. So Vox's Ezra Klein show or The Axe Files with David Axelrod or sometimes Sam Harris will have political guests on Waking Up. So that's kind of where I go. Also, sometimes Krista Tippett on her show On Being will have guests with a political bent and I'll often listen to those. And speaking of which, she's kind of my interviewing hero on being and uh Krista Tippett is for on being. And so I also listen to that show. Again, I kind of cherry pick episodes depending on the guest. 
I'm not like super consistent in my listening of that show either. And I, recently I've been listening to most episodes of The Bible for Normal People, which is Pete Enns' podcast. I think that his content is really great. His mind is really sharp and the guests that he and his co-host Jared get are mostly quite interesting. And then for occasional entertainment only, I listen to Song Exploder, which is where they break down songs with the artist who wrote them and pull out different parts and play them by themselves. And then at the end you hear the whole song and it's just like a really cool way to think about music. And then finally, to be honest with you guys, I listen to my own shows, especially if the interviews were conducted a while back and I've forgotten what was said. But also sometimes I just miss things during the actual conversation because I'm thinking as a host or as an interviewer and stuff slips by me. And it's nice to just listen back and to learn from the guest and reinforce what what he or she has said. Next general question is from Paul Matthew Harrison. He says, I'd like to hear about the books that had the biggest influence on you. Thank you, Paul. I love a chance to talk about all the great books I've read and pat myself on the back and show everybody that I'm a deep thinker. So I will take this opportunity Since politics is a far more recent interest of mine, most of these books are more about faith and religion. Now, obviously, I could think of like 50 books, but here are just a few of them. Shusaku Endo's book Silence, which was recently made into a film by Martin Scorsese, starring Andrew Garfield. I read it, I think, my freshman year of college, and it asked these really hard questions about God's silence God's apparent lack of action in the world, kind of questions that I didn't think were allowed, that Christians were allowed to ask. So I think that was really valuable for me. And that gave me permission to sort of plumb these really tough things about religion and the big problems that religious thinkers have always tried to solve, like the problem of evil, for instance, or salvation and damnation and stuff like that. And also that book gave me this early inkling of the difficulty of translating ideas between cultures. In this case, it's Western Christianity and Japanese culture. And Endo had kind of a strange view where he really thought that Christianity could never really be understood by Japanese people, which I don't know if that's true or not, but that was like a crazy thing for me to hear and to understand about him and to see in his books. And that's one of the things that early on got me thinking these kind of universal questions about God's revelation to people and how confident we can be given our own situatedness. You know, I happen to have been born in the United States in 1983, you know, into a white family, upper middle class that, you know, I was born into an evangelical church. What if I was born in Iran in 400 BC? You know, like these questions of is what God wants me to know today the same thing that he would have wanted me to know in Iran in 400 BC? If so, how does he communicate that to people? So this book was just, uh, and other books by Endo were just kind of helpful in getting the wheels started on questions like that that nowadays I can't really imagine thinking about faith without thinking through questions like that. 
The next one is a book that I don't think is like very popular, but it got to me at a really helpful time. It's called End Times Fiction by Gary DeMar. And basically it was a critique of left behind theology, which for me had been a major source of anxiety. And I think I could honestly say like spiritual abuse in my early life as a young Christian. I, I've told the story on Reconstruct. I think it was our first episode when we were when John and I were telling our stories of deconstruction and reconstruction. But in sixth grade, somebody gave me a book and it was called something like September 1996, or maybe it's just called 1996, like 96 reasons why Jesus will return in September of 1996. And I'm sitting here, I'm in sixth grade. I'm just like, I wish I could have a girlfriend. I want to grow up and have an adult life. I'm just freaking out. And for a couple months, I just was going to sleep anxious. I was having panic attacks. I I didn't know what to call them then. I was in sixth grade. And really then in eighth grade, I took a Bible class at my Christian junior high and we studied Revelation and Daniel as like an end times thing. And and I I could barely make it into class. I would have panic attacks every day. And uh, for whatever reason, you know, those of you who have anxiety disorders, you'll recognize this. If not, you, you probably don't really get it. It will seem super weird. But the way that anxiety works is there are triggers. And once you have a panic attack about something, it's very easy to get panicky about it again. It, it can trigger that anxiety. And so that was a real problem for me up through college. And then I read this book in college and he kind of eviscerated Tim LaHaye's inconsistent theology and his inconsistent method. And that was so so liberating for me. For me, when I get anxious, it's helpful to think through things. Like my reason is one of the ways that I get out of anxiety triggers over time. I just think through them and I learn more. And so this was really helpful. Now, DeMar also presented what's called amillennialism as an alternate view to the like pre-trib dispensationalism or whatever it's called in the Left Behind books. I held this amillennial view for a number of years before coming to my current view. My current view is more like, who knows? I think that the end times is easily the most difficult topic in the Bible. I think we have the least to go on. We have these books that are written in an extinct literary form, which is apocalyptic literature. We're not very good at reading apocalyptic because nobody writes it anymore. But anyway, the point now is, isn't that I adopted Gary DeMar's view in end times fiction. It's just that I was able to like get past this major source of anxiety and, and I really think spiritual abuse. So I'm grateful for that book. Two more books. The first one is Finding Darwin's God by Kenneth Miller. And this book presented an example to me of a completely faithful practicing Christian who was also a microbiologist at Brown University at an Ivy League who completely accepts the science behind biological evolution and common descent, but who still practices real daily Christian faith. It was clearly written. It was convincingly argued and it really gave me kind of like a, a foundation to stand on to go, okay, I really need to come to terms with what we know about evolution and the natural world through science and what 
I think I know about God and his character, uh, maybe his plan for us, etc. And I really think that the, the nexus of, of those kind of questions of science and religion will be one of the most interesting areas of the next hundred years. And this book gave me permission, really a lot of books are for me are about permission, to be open-minded scientifically and still hold on to my faith. And of course, last book, most recently, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. But I'm going to talk about this a bit more in a later question. And of course, I talk about it all the time, but I still have to mention it. It's probably the most impactful book I've read in the last three years, at least. That little sound in between is uh, some, it's called a mnemonic in ad music. It's like, you know, a couple seconds long. I wrote a bunch of these weird ones for Coors Light once, or Corona Light, and uh, that was one of them. And I thought, oh, that'll work. It's a little break in between questions. So we're moving on now to depolarize related questions. This one is from Robert on Twitter, no last name given. The question is, what issues are you finding are hardest for you to depolarize personally? Oh my gosh, Robert, that is a great question. I think about this constantly. Some days I can't write anything online or have any conversations about politics with anybody because I'm so disheartened, I'm so apathetic, I'm so pessimistic that anything could ever change. (laughs) I definitely have those days. And even though I feel like I am really learning a lot about the Christian political right, I still have a very hard time with Christians who voted for Trump. I think I'm getting a little better at this. In fact, I just recently spoke with a man who's been kind of a mentor to me and to whom I look up to quite a bit, and he defended his choice. He also admitted that he's been very disappointed with Trump. And when I said, hey man, most anybody paying attention had good reason to believe Trump would disappoint them, you know, he did laugh. He didn't get angry at me. So it it was that kind of a conversation. And I'm not satisfied totally by his answers, but I feel like I was able to listen to him better than I would have been able to a few months ago, for sure. But I will stand by this thing that I always say, which is that the only thing that all Trump voters share is that they voted for Trump. That's just it. People are individuals. They have individual reasons for thinking about things. That's voters. But If someone uses biblical language or Christian language to sort of describe Trump as anointed or Trump as a baby Christian that we need to be patient with or something like that, I got to confess that I have not been able to be very depolarizing in those settings. When I hear people use that kind of language, honestly, I'm really embarrassed at how gullible those in my own tradition can be. I mean, I feel like it's clear that Christians are being used in those situations, that that language is being used as a tool to make gullible Christians repeat a political agenda. Now, if those words are spoken by leaders, even leaders who've done good work in the past, like, for instance, James Dobson, I don't agree with everything James Dobson and and Focus on the Family have done, but I know that there's definitely some good that that organization and this man has brought into the world when he says stuff like that, I get really sad. And I, I, I essentially consider those leaders to be pathetic. And that's not very depolarizing, I know. So I still have some work maybe to do there. 
Maybe I shouldn't even <laughs> say this stuff, voice these opinions, not practicing what I preach, but I'll just say this. I, I do know that I don't understand enough yet. I think there is some fundamental tension between being a Christian and actively promoting Trump. There is tension. But there's also a lot about human nature, human psychology, tribal and group identities that I don't understand yet. I'm, I'm a total newbie when it comes to the psychological end, even though I'm obviously very interested in it. So maybe as I learn more about that, I will be able to be more forgiving. This question is kind of related. This is from Luke and Martha on Twitter. Two people asked this. How do you interact with the Fox News crowd? Is it worth trying to convince them that they're being brainwashed? Strong, strong wording. I think the question was from Luke and Martha said ditto. Uh, first of all, it's always worth it to love another person. Full stop. Whether or not talking politics is a loving action or not, that's a question to be answered in each case, sort of with discretion. Sometimes it's not loving to bring up politics and you kind of got to use your, use your discretion there. But let's focus first on the term brainwashing. I want to start by bringing back in a helpful distinction made by Josh Hafner on our media diet episode between reporting and editorial. So much of the actual reporting at Fox, like the regular daily journalism is fine work and is not that different from CNN and New York Times, etc. It has its own editorial slant to it, but it's good reporting. Regular daily Fox reporters are doing good work, just like our CNN reporters, Times reporters, etc. Now, much of the opinion and the editorial stuff on Fox is pretty far right. Specifically, I'm thinking of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, and maybe a slightly lesser extent Bill O'Reilly from the fairly small amount of their shows that I've watched. But for instance, and I haven't watched a ton, but Shepard Smith has seemed to me to be quite fair in his treatment of various controversies, even critical of the right. So there isn't really a monolith of Fox News, not really. So I would take issue with the idea that Fox News watchers are being brainwashed exactly. Some of them are probably also watching Shepard Smith and are getting a couple you know, angles on things. But let me talk about Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity for a second. I mean, those guys are really hard for me to watch. They yell. They just yell and they constantly argue. They don't appear to have any interest in rational discourse most of the time. And it's very popular. People are drawn to that. I will say when Crossfire was on television, People were drawn to that as well, which had both sides, a conservative and a liberal doing that. I also think that Bill Maher sometimes on the left is, is the same way. You know, he doesn't speak about a lot of issues with any kind of nuance. You know, it's, it's polemic and it can sometimes be hysterical. That's hard. That's like, that gets to the core of who someone is. You know, if, if you're the kind of person who turns on Tucker Carlson and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That does say something about you. I mean, it says something about you kind of constitutionally. And that is difficult. There is a culture at Fox News. And especially for those people who watch it hours per day, it will change them. So I find that when I speak to someone who watches only Fox News, that's their only source of news. I don't tend to make a whole lot of progress 
because before long, we can't really agree on facts or sources for facts. And there's also just that kind of dispositional thing of like, if you watch enough Tucker Carlson, then what you think political conversation is, is gotcha, is like gotcha moments. That's just what you think it would be because that's like what he does. He's not listening to his guests from what I've seen. He's not listening to his guests and responding to them. He is skewering them for the enjoyment of his audience to show his tribe that he's in. That's how it reads to me. I'm biased. I also see this on the left. I'm not, it's not only on the right that this happens. So if someone is like full on that kind of a Fox News viewer, I don't know what you can do. You can just present a good example of a loving person, I think. But if it's not that, if there's a bit more room, more wiggle room, what I try and do is I try and find things that the other person is saying or the group, if I'm in a group with many such people, to find the things that I agree with and make sure to acknowledge those things verbally, maybe even more than once. Then I try and be gentle in how I push back on other aspects of what they're saying. This is, of course, when I'm on my best behavior. (laughs) This is very hard to do. But generally, I think the best way to convince someone who only watches Fox News that they should consume other media content is just to be an example, not to directly challenge Fox News. Eventually, over time, that person will wonder where I'm getting my own ideas, some of which align with theirs and some of which diverge. You basically can't change someone's mind unless they like you. That's one of the takeaways from our episode with Ravi Iyer, the psychologist. And I will admit that this is still very difficult for me. I very often find myself going, well, Dan, you just did the opposite of what you tell people to do there. And I really struggle with pessimism sometimes, but this is how I've been trying to make a go of it. And I think that I'm on the right track and I need to just stick to it. Okay, another depolarized question from David Norling. Say more about what you've learned from the righteous mind and other related ideas. I know you mentioned it a lot, but I've never heard you detail how it is that you conceive of diverging worldviews. Well, David, the number one thing I have taken away from that book is humility. I've learned that I have not chosen my own moral frameworks, which moral taste buds, so to speak, to use the analogy they use, loom largest on my own palate, my own moral palate. Some of that's geographic, what nation I was born into. Some of it's probably DNA or something similar. Some of it is a result of experiences that have happened to me, not that I've chosen. So what this does for me is it raises my compassion for those with whom I disagree on big moral issues. Also, it reduces my certainty that I'm in the right. As a result, I find that it pushes me toward the center in two different ways. The first way that it pushes me towards the center is that I worry that as somebody who finds myself on the left, that I'm actually ignoring some moral questions regarding authority, loyalty, or sanctity. What might I be missing? I'm more open to listening to conservative voices to see if the best of those might kindle something inside me that I can recognize to be worth pursuing. So I will say I have a fundamental greater openness to the right as a result of reading that book. That feels healthy to me. The the second way that this kind of pushes me toward the center is that, okay, if I believe that the people that I disagree with 
are not all bad people, but rather they have differing moral frameworks they didn't choose that all but determine that they will disagree with me, okay, if I believe that's true, then I'm a lot less likely to write them off as bigots or uneducated or unenlightened. If that's the case, then I'm more likely to think that I would like to appeal to them rather than work around them. So for instance, there was the woman at the tax march, the story I've told a couple times, with the sign that said white dudes are a bummer and I was chatting with her about it. And, and you know, after I had sort of shown her that I agreed with all of the facts of the situation about white supremacy and mass incarceration, she just got exasperated and said, you know what? I'm not here to convince people. Well, reading The Righteous Mind, I think I probably am here to convince people. In fact, it's better to convince people than to just bulldoze them. So this makes me more of a centrist in the practical sense that it might just be the case actually in the world that centrists and moderates get things done because they're able to appeal to more people. So I had this discussion with some friends recently who were further on the left saying, I don't think that anybody needs, you know, we were talking about Steve Kerr and the Warriors and whether or not they were going to go to the White House to accept, you know, accolades from Trump. And, you know, his perspective, which I understand was like, and maybe this is right, by the way, I don't know what Steve Kerr should do. I also don't know if he should listen to his, his players, his employees, or if he should make the decision himself. But it brought up this question of like, is he sort of supporting people who agree with him or is he supporting marginalized people by taking a stand against power or is Kerr, he's by the way, the, the uh, coach of the Golden State Warriors who just won the finals, NBA finals, or should Kerr be like focusing on the 10% of Republicans who are most likely to agree with the left on some issues or agree with him on his political views? That's a really hard question to answer. And in the case of the warrior's actual decision, I have no idea what the right choice is, but I will just say that the book has made me, generally speaking, on a whole host of issues, more likely to want to talk to moderate Republicans, if I'm a Democrat, for instance, about mass incarceration or some issue or gun control, rather than go sort of militantly on the left. And furthermore, that I see more clearly the political and policy benefits of such a perspective or such a process. Because when you get that greater range of people, you can get more votes for whatever it is you're trying to get through. I could say a lot more about this political centrism, but I'd just like to make one more note. I think that probably at the level of Christian faith, a Christian should have a robust sense of all six moral frameworks. I'm kind of toying with this idea. But each of those should be animated by Christ. So, for instance, loyalty to America can be a good thing. I think it often is. But biblically, our loyalty has to be first and foremost to God. And if the laws of America contradict God's law, then we need to go with God. Now, some on the right would say, well, that means yeah, that we need to fight against abortion, for instance. And that might be true, but it might also mean like many people should not be in the military or they should be a medic in the military rather than firing weapons. Now they might have differing views, but my point is just, 
our loyalty to God's kingdom should come before our loyalty to America. But I worry that as someone on the left, I don't think about loyalty at all sometimes. That's worrisome for me. And biblically, we are asked to respect our leaders and our governments. So the liberal tendency to sort of completely disregard loyalty to nation, I think, you know, I'm probably guilty of that sometimes, and it's probably short-sighted. I think you can find Bible verses for all six foundations throughout Scripture, not just cherry-picking verses, but like there can be a robust biblical sort of foundation for each of the foundations or each of the uh, taste buds. And I do worry some days about the modern Christian left, especially when it becomes clear to me that they're riffing only on care and fairness, as Haidt would say. I do love the counterbalancing aspect of that prophetic voice on the left, but I wonder if now, knowing what we know about psychology, if there's also an opening for prophetic voices calling for reconciliation, not simply more care and fairness. And I guess I sort of see myself as maybe one of those kind of voices within the Christian world trying to bring reconciliation between people with different moral frameworks. This is from Mitch Mallory. The question is, if Trump, in fact, attempted to obstruct justice by firing Comey, even if there was no collusion, do you believe he ought to be impeached? So the question is, Let's say there was no collusion between Trump's campaign and Russia, but in fact, it can be proven maybe through tapes that Trump tried to get Comey to go easy on Flynn, and that would be an obstruction of justice. If that's true, should he be impeached? This is really hard. I mean, legally and morally, I think, yeah, he probably should be. My understanding is that obstruction of justice is an impeachable offense, And if he were to be found guilty of it, I think you got to see it through. But my worry is about the aftermath. Are people convinced that it's really that bad of a thing? Like, are the American people convinced that someone like Trump saying, hey, can you just, you know, can you let that thing go for my guy? I mean, I, when I think about that, I go, that's a really big deal. This is the FBI director. But I don't know if other people are convinced by that. What kind of revolt might occur? How many people might die? How many Americans would feel like their government no longer has any chance of doing them any good and would become completely nihilistic? You know, they think we finally get a guy in there who cares about us and they get him on a technicality. Now, to be clear, I don't think that would be a technicality, but I could certainly imagine people thinking of it that way. That really scares me. But I think when it comes down to it, if I had to choose... I think you got to go through with the rule of law, even if the consequences are scary. Okay, we are moving on to reconstruct-based questions. And I got the most of these. People just have more questions about this, I guess. Um, Or maybe I am just less clear, and so there are more questions. I wasn't able to answer all of them. I did as many as I could reasonably answer. Here's the first one. It's from Eric Trine. Why reconstruct? From the few episodes I've listened to, it seems like the intended audience is folks who are already invested in the process of reconstructing. Good question. But this one's pretty easy for me. If there is a God, and if that God is the God that created the universe with trillions and trillions of stars, that's 13 billion years old. If that God exists, and if that God is loving, 
and is interested in a communicative and loving relationship with every human being, then that's just the most important fact in the world. I don't see any way around it. So if you believe that's true, that that God that created the universe is loving and wants a loving and communicative relationship with you, you might ask, well, is there any way to be more or less in touch with that God in like a better or worse kind of relationship? And I think the answer to that question is obviously yes. I mean, we know that there are people who are morally better and morally worse. We know people who are more peaceful, less peaceful, more joyful, less joyful. So yeah, there is a way to be in a closer relationship with God. It seems to me. Now, I also think that human psychology tells us a lot about how our brains work, our identities, the ways in which we actually learn how we actually change our behavior, how suffering shapes us, etc. We know a lot about how people become the kind of people that they become. So for me, if I just said, yes, I believe in that God, I believe that the infinitely loving God loves me, but I'm not going to make any effort toward him, toward God. That would be counterintuitive on my view. And I feel like I'm, I'm coming across kind of judging here. I don't mean to be judging or to be harsh. I just think, yeah, that's why you would want to reconstruct. Now, someone might go, still, I'm not with you. Well, it might be that you don't actually believe that that's true about God. And if you did believe it, then it would be clearer to you. So maybe there are people who aren't convinced. They think, well, I've been taught that God exists and that he loves me, but I don't have any real reason to believe it. Well, in that case, that's different. I do have reason to believe it, I think. And I think that there might even be people who say, you know, I don't have reason to believe that God is loving, but I'd like to believe that. And some people who I trust believe that. So they might be interested in reconstruction. They might be interested in learning how they might come to something like that. Now, there's a sub-question in here, Eric, that you didn't ask, but that I think you might have also meant, or someone could certainly wonder about, which is, why just focus on Christianity then? I mean, if it's just about God's love, then, you know, have a show about all the different religions. I actually think that would be a great show, and maybe someday I will do a show like that, but we just chose because John and I are both Christians. That's what we know the most about. Those are the guests we would be able to ask good questions to, whatever. That's what we're going to do. Now, we both also happen to believe that God is uniquely revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. And so that makes us Christians. That doesn't mean, as I sort of say all the time on the show, that doesn't mean that God does not reveal himself elsewhere also. But you know, you got to kind of go with something. And I experience God through Christianity. And so what I can do to help is for people who are interested in Christianity, either in living it or just are interested, I can try and provide something that helps them think through that and how that might be, how they might pursue that or how other people pursue it. Now, to your point that people who are listening are already interested, that's probably true. But I think that's also true for people who watch Fox News, right? Or people who go to the coolest new bar in town. They are the type of people who like cool new bars. That's just like true for media and human experiences.
Good one from Jed on Facebook. Why do people, quote, only trust what Jesus said, not the other writers, unquote, when in fact they have no idea whether or not those are the words Jesus actually said? Are the Gospels more historically reliable than other New Testament books? So among the four Gospels, three of them are written based on, quote, eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is most likely written later and does not appear to be telling a strictly historical account the way the other three are. Some people disagree on that. I think that there's pretty good evidence of that. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, which just means they're the ones that attempt to give a synopsis or a summary of Jesus's ministry, death, and resurrection. So leaving aside the gospel of John for now, are the synoptic gospels more historically reliable than other books of the New Testament? Well, I think that those three gospels plus Acts and to a lesser extent, John, are the only books actually in the New Testament that are supposed to be historical, right? I mean, Paul's letters are historically situated, but they don't make very many historical claims. So maybe the real question is not about if they're more historical or less historical, but are they accurate? Are the gospels accurate? Now, I'm not a theological or biblical conservative, as you guys know. I don't just drink the Kool-Aid, I don't think, but I do trust the basic opinion of two New Testament scholars, Luke Timothy Johnson and Craig C. Allison. And here's their basic conclusion. Within the Synoptic Gospels, we get a general picture of Jesus of Nazareth that is accurate. I'll say that again. Within the Synoptic Gospels, we get a general picture of Jesus of Nazareth that is accurate. These are the kinds of things he did actually say. Some of these passages likely reflect word-for-word messages that he would give, maybe often. Jesus was an itinerant preacher, just like a traveling preacher or a stand-up comedian or a motivational speaker might do today. He would use the same material many times. Now, what we do not have confidence about, according to Johnson and Allison, is that he said these particular things to these particular people as they're written in the Gospels. So they would believe that each gospel writer is placing Jesus in narratively constructed scenarios, saying the kind of things he really said, but not necessarily at the time he said them to these exact people. That's their view. So we don't have a super granular certainty about the life of Jesus of Nazareth, but that's not a death sentence for the gospels by any means. Now it's helpful to remember that these gospels were written after the earliest followers of Jesus started dying 40 years or so after Jesus' death. So, and this is because they're like, oh, well, some people say anyway, this is because the early Christians were like, oh, we thought the world was going to end pretty soon here. It hasn't ended. People are being born into this faith, multiple generations worth. And the people who were there are dying out. We need to get this stuff written down. But that means that the church had 40 years to grow to be taught by the Holy Spirit, if you believe in the Holy Spirit, to think through things about Jesus that were most important, like what happened, you know? So from the earliest New Testament writings, like Paul's letters, all the way through to Revelation and the latest writings, there is a progression of theological concepts that grows more robust over time. And this applies to the Gospels, or or the Gospels come in the midst of that progression of all the New Testament writings. 
So what we do have in the gospels on this view is not exactly the Jesus of Nazareth that existed, but we do have the Jesus Christ that the early church worshiped. We have their understanding as the early church of the kernel of who Jesus was, what he said and did, what he came to do. Some people will undoubtedly be unsatisfied with this answer. We need to know exactly what Jesus said, when and where, and to whom. But I'm okay with this answer. I mean, historical accounts aren't ever written that way. Think about it. Historians always pick and choose what they want to include, and they use literary conventions to highlight what they think is most important. No record of George Washington's life is just a list of all the things he said and did. A biography of George Washington will choose the moments that are the, not just the most important and had the greatest effect, but that also summarize the person, right? If you're giving a eulogy for your father, you think of the two or three stories that sum him up best. This is how historians write. So what we do have is the Jesus Christ of the early church, who's still the Jesus of today's church. We have a clear picture of the type of man he was, the types of things he said, lessons he taught, and we have accounts of many of the most important moments of his life from multiple angles. That's enough for me to follow Jesus. This is from Luke on Twitter. For those of us without a podcast, what is the best way to share Jesus with non-believers? Loving example only or purposeful conversion effort? That is a really good and really hard question. And I honestly don't know the answer. I'm not a guru, especially not when it comes to evangelism. So take my answer here with a grain of salt. I do have a few thoughts. Let's leave the podcast issue aside. I'll just think about the way that I tend to chat with non-religious or ex-religious people in real life when spiritual questions come up. Personally, I have felt for about 10 years now that my gifting in this area is making Christianity understandable to people who either don't know Christian language or hate Christian language or don't know any religious language or are frustrated with any religious language. Now, there are surely people whose calling is to like openly evangelize using bold, established religious language. I don't think that's me. Doesn't mean that's not somebody else. So I rarely make what you're calling, Luke, a purposeful conversion effort, or at least how I interpret that phrase. But I love talking about God, about prayer, about meditation, about sacrificial love, about being in the moment, all of that stuff with people who are not religious. What I try and do is I try to be clear but also use language that will be understood by whomever I'm speaking with. So I want to make sure I'm saying what I mean about God. I'm not sort of sugarcoating that, but that the person can understand me. I'll ask them if terms need to be clarified or, you know, or whatever. I try to be conscious of that as I go. And in those conversations, I find it's helpful to ask a lot of questions of other people. What are their kind of foundational beliefs about the world or experiences that they've had and just see where you can go from there. I mean, just you sort of hear them give their answer and then you search your own mind to find connections, but mostly, you know, just listen and they may ask the question that they really want to know. That would be the best case scenario. And that's not just 
in evangelism, but that's in all human interactions. When someone asks the question that you can tell is the one they really want to know, that's when you're really having a conversation. So that's kind of my, I don't know how helpful that is, but that's kind of how I think about those conversations. But to answer the other part of your question, I think that for most Christians, our primary means of evangelism should just be loving example, as you put it. I mean, if we don't have the kind of life that someone else is attracted to, then why would they want to have the kind of faith that we have? And we can't have that kind of life that people are attracted to, or we could just say we can't have a robust religious life if we're constantly thinking about our outward interactions with others. We have to look inward. We have to invite God to work on us. We have to work on our inner life. So for me, my primary act of evangelism, I think, is to become more like Christ. And then I sort of think God will take care of it from there. And I think that this is actually the same as much of the rest of our life. You know, I can't convince an alcoholic to stop drinking. She's going to want to have to do so herself, right? All I can do is provide an example. Depending on my relationship, I might provide some structure or support, if that's called for, and then I can let her choose. Now, you might ask, well, that's fine with alcoholism, but when we are evangelizing, isn't the Holy Spirit involved coming in and convicting people's hearts and showing them that that uh, they need God? I think, yeah, that's totally that happens. But is that different? When someone decides they're finally done with alcoholism, when they recognize their brokenness and they humbly ask for help to defeat a disease they can't defeat on their own, when they see a potential other kind of life ahead that they could be living that is harmonious and, and joyful and loving, isn't that the Holy Spirit as well? It seems to me like it probably is. Okay, we got three questions left. This one is also from Mitch Mallory, who asked a question earlier. What would you tell a Christian who believes that the Bible condemns homosexuality? Now, I know this might beg for a longer answer, but I'm going to try and give a short one. Forgive my overgeneralizations. I actually agree with that person that the Bible condemns homosexuality, but let me be clear what I mean by that. The biblical writers who wrote about homosexuality, clearly believed that homosexual sex was a sin. This includes the writers of the Torah and also Paul. Now, I get into this more in an upcoming Reconstruct episode, but basically I think that Paul definitely thought homosexual sex was wrong, was sinful. It was an act that went against human nature, against God's plans for human beings. However, I do not think that Christians are necessarily bound by all the views of all the biblical writers for a couple reasons. Number one, biblical writers disagree with each other on multiple occasions. This is not true about homosexuality, by the way. The only time it's spoken about is negatively. But it is true on other occasions throughout the Bible. And the fact that the Bible is multivocal means we do sometimes have to choose which voice is God's? And we also might think, hey, not every voice in here is God's, especially if we want to, if we think we can relegate something to cultural assumptions. And that's really the question is, 
can homosexuality as sin be considered a cultural assumption or not? That's the question. Number two reason that I don't think we are held to all the views of the biblical writers is that biblical writers held other beliefs that I do not believe we are supposed to believe, specifically about polygamy, slavery, human rights of people outside of our own tribe, women's equality, head coverings, etc. So we already have opinions expressed by biblical writers, even in the New Testament, that we do not tend to think we are held to. So all that says is that the door is open for a conversation. Just because Paul believed that homosexual sex was sinful does not, in my opinion, make it so. We need a more robust understanding of what we do with scripture and what parts of scripture or what views in scripture all Christians are held to and what views are culturally conditioned. Obviously, I have not given any sort of a slam dunk argument for homosexual monogamy being unsinful or accepted by God. Of course, I haven't done that. That's just the groundwork. There's plenty more work you would need to do to get there. But that's how I would start the conversation with somebody who said that. One is from Tierney Edwards. When breaking down what you believe and what you've been taught, where have you landed when it comes to tithing? Tithing is, of course, giving of money to the church. It was traditionally 10% in the Old Testament. Jesus never gives a percentage. This is a really interesting topic for me. I don't want to say too much because I think that Jesus tells us not to say too much about our charitable giving and such like that. But I'll just give a few kind of more broad thoughts on it. I think that people should be both, number one, radically open to God calling them to be more generous with their money than they are. But also, number two, in conversation with older and wiser people who have made good financial decisions or bad ones and learned from them, or even better, people who have counseled many people on financial decisions and seen the fruits of those choices. There's no number at which point God is satisfied and you've given enough. That's not how Jesus sees it. Jesus sees it more like everything you have is God's. You need to, and you ought to think of all of your resources as gifts from God and you are a steward of them. Use them well. Now, for me, I love what Catholic social teaching says about resources. And as far as I understand it, it's a very simple phrase. The more resources you have, the more obligated you are to use those resources for those with fewer resources. So there's no percentage there, but it's rather a relationship between how much we have and how much we should be giving. Sort of like Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. I personally think that's the best yardstick for these questions. Now, in terms of what counts as tithing or giving back to God, I tend to be pretty flexible. I don't think it's just you give to your local church. I tend to think of it like this is money that we are not spending on ourselves. We're not spending it on our experiences or our stuff, but rather this is money that is given solely to do good in the world to help bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
So I think there's a lot of flexibility in charities or loved ones sometimes when that's appropriate or whatever that tithe money can be given to. I think supporting a local church is really important, but I don't think you need to be legalistic about that. Okay, this is the final question, which means that was the last time you had to listen to that weird little sound in this in between the questions. This is from Zach Crater. What does the Bible being inspired by God mean to you, assuming you ascribe to some form of inspiration? Are some parts more inspired than others? Well, this is the easiest question to answer because I mostly just get to point you to this coming Monday's episode of Reconstruct, where we talk about inerrancy and infallibility and what scripture is as our authority. So I'll give a little spoiler. I do believe that some sections of scripture get a lot closer to who God actually is than other sections. For instance, Jesus, the historical man, I believe was the embodiment of God as a human. Now, I don't have Jesus, the historical man, in front of me, but I do have material that deals with him. And as I said earlier, I think it's fundamentally sound and gives a pretty accurate picture of who Jesus was. And so whatever the Bible says about Jesus that can be trusted, that's the closest I get to God. More so than, for instance, Moses says that God said this, just by virtue of the fact that that was not Jesus, I think Jesus is more trustworthy. Or go back to Joshua, where it's like, God told us we should kill all these people and take this land. Well, he might have, but that's not as trustworthy as Jesus. And I'm just going to leave it there and leave that as a cliffhanger. Listen to Monday's Reconstruct, and you get a lot more about this. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next episode.